Good evening. How are you guys? Good? You, do, you all? You all good? It's so good to be here. Um, I had such a fun time uh, getting to hang out with the, the earlier gatherings and the other location, and uh, it's such an honor to come back. So two years ago, I, I was here speaking in this location, and it was when you had the, the tower the, the pulpit thing, and I'd never spoken anything like that before, and so that was intimidating and slightly awkward, um, so I'm thankful to get to be a little lower down uh, with all of you, and I, let me just say, um, first of all, well, uh, so thankful for this church, and you have a church in Portland, Oregon uh, called West Side of Jesus Church that is watching what you're doing, learning from you guys, and the impact that you're making is so significant, and so I want to thank you for that, and uh, whenever I get to come here and just see how you're doing, the amazing leadership team that you have and uh, the trajectory that this church is on, it is really, really inspiring. Uh, you would never guess it based on my accent, but I was actually born um, in the UK, uh, in, in Oxford, and so coming back to the UK, um, it kind of feels like a, a homecoming for me. Um, and uh, But let me just say this too, you guys are so much more friendly in the north compared to further south. It's like the most refreshing thing. Um, and, and people don't look at you like they hate you because you have an American accent, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to be, be here and uh, Brian too for the opportunity to share. So I wrote this book uh, called When Faith Fails. It came out in February. And I brought a few copies if you guys are interested in the back. But uh, I, I wrote it because there was a season in my life where um, I was deconstructing my faith and actually almost became an atheist. And it was one of the most excruciating, kind of brutal seasons of my life. And uh, going through that, wanted to share a little bit of that story um, and why and how God kind of brought me back from the brink and, and also to help uh, people who are going through a season of doubt or deconstruction. Um, Brian and I were talking about this earlier today, um, how in the church we talk a lot about faith, and we talk a lot about, you know, ha having confidence and trust in the Lord, and that, that's so, like, valid and important. Even songs we're singing tonight, so important. Um, but there's another side <laughs> that we often doesn't get talked about, and that is, what about those times where it feels like your faith is failing? Um, what do we do with doubt? And, and I really think in, in this time in which we live, in this culture in which we find ourselves in, in 2019, that we need to, as the church, have a deep rethink about what doubt is and how do we respond to seasons of doubt. So I'm going to take you on a little journey. I won't keep you too long um, because it's hot. In, it's actually hot in here. Um, so we're going to start with a single verse in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is the second to last uh, book in the Bible, and there's only one chapter in Jude. Um, so we're going to look at Jude verse 20. 22, and there it is on the screen. We've been doing this at all gatherings earlier today. So if you guys are up for it, let's just read this verse in a loud voice together, okay? On the count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. Be merciful to those who doubt. Um, there's a ton of people I know. When they look at that verse or when they broach the subject of doubt, um, they actually have a really hard time relating to it. And the reason being is it because it seems they've never gone through a season or a time where they've doubt it. Um, I think of my mo own mom, for example, or some people I know that are church, and you, you ask people like that, maybe you know people who are in this space, you say, how long have you been a follower of Jesus? And they kind of look at you like, well, 
I've always been saved. I've always known Jesus. I mean, they were singing Hillsong in their, in their mother's womb. And they just came out speaking in tongues and haven't looked back since. And if that's your journey, I'm kind of envious of that. Um, but I think for many of us, uh, doubt is kind of part of the process. Um, the philosopher Michael Novak, he said that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. Doubt is kind of part of the complicated, enigmatic, beautiful mess of what it means to be human. And I think the further you follow Jesus and the farther you go in, in this experience of knowing God and pursuing God, there will inevitably be times where it feels like your faith is being shaken. In fact, I would actually argue the deeper your faith, the deeper you feel those seasons of doubt. Um, doubt is the moment when you're sitting next to the your friend who maybe is passing away with with cancer and, and you wonder god where are you why why are you allowing this to happen or doubt is the moment when you're praying and you're asking god for a breakthrough and a miracle and you hear nothing but crickets in return um doubt is the moment when maybe you're part of a church community not this one because you guys are super healthy but other churches where the closer you get to the lifeblood of that church the more you discover like flaws and issues and drama and politics and you're like man is any of this true at all like is church just a social club should i really be a part of this and is what they're saying does it have any credibility whatsoever um, i ran into a guy a couple months ago who used to be a part of our church and i'm like hey you should come back we haven't seen you for a while and his response was so stereotypical he's like hey dom I don't like going to church anymore because the church is full of hypocrites. To which I responded, well, there's always room for one more. Like, we'd love to have you come back. Um, but I get that as, as a pastor. And again, if you've been part of church for any length of time, you know that church is flawed and it's filled with people who have issues. And that can create doubt. Doubt is the moment when maybe you're taking a science course and you begin to see things that at a surface level are incompatible with the Christian story. Or, or even doubt can be generated by your reading of scripture. Have any of you guys experienced this before where you begin to read through the Bible, maybe you do a read through the Bible in a year program, and you start in Genesis, and it's mostly fast moving, and there's a ton of stories, and you get to Exodus, and that's cool too. And then you hit the book of Leviticus, and how many read through the Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? I mean, to be honest, you, you come across verses that, again, at a surface level seem weird or bloody or violent or sexist or just kind of strange. Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and you put it outside, right? And so reading the Bible, and I've experienced this too, like you come across those portions and you don't know what to do with it. And, and it sometimes can create more questions than answers. We, we, we go through times inevitably where our faith will be shaken either circumstantially or something you're wrestling through intellectually or at the very least we will experience doubt because of this moment in which we find ourselves in um, the sociologist charles taylor uses the word secularization how we live in this post-christian post-truth era and because of that, we breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. And I, I think there's another way of looking at it. We can say we're post-Christian or, as I like to say, you know what, post-Christian or we're pre-revival. I prefer looking at it that way because I think in this time in which we live, it's ripe 
for revival, for a new wind of, of God's spirit to blow through and shake us and awake us and draw us close to him. But we look around and man, what we're experiencing right now in the world globally, and certainly this is true back home in America, um, more and more doubt is on the rise. Uh, you look at the stats, doubt is up 15% in the last 10 years. Two thirds of people who confess to be followers of Jesus experience doubt on a regular basis. And Gen Z, which is the generation after the millennials, I think it's anyone 22 and under, is considered the least Christian generation of all time. James K.A. Smith said, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. Now, when a Christian goes through a season of doubt, and maybe you're in that space tonight, typically you're given two options, and neither option is very good. Option one is to idolize your doubt. And I see this a ton right now back home in, in the city of Portland. Um, Portland, by the way, is kind of different from the rest of America, especially like the Bible Belt where it's more conservative and a lot of people go to church. Portland's one of the least Christian uh, cities in America and least amount of church attendance in America. And, and what I'm finding is that many, many people, when they go through a time of doubt, they automatically put more trust in the doubt than in the thing that they're doubting. So, for example, think of the 19-year-old who goes off to university, and they read half of the God delusion. Now, maybe they were raised in a Christian home, and they had a set of theology which they believed and embraced, which was handed down to them from their parents. Then they go to university, read half the God delusion, and then they announce on Snapchat, I'm an atheist. And everyone's like, what? Totally shocked. What's happened there? Is well, they've experienced these questions or worldviews that maybe they weren't familiar with before, and they automatically assume because they have those doubts, that those doubts must be true. And so they abandon their faith and walk away from their faith in the name of, I think a key word is deconstruction. Now, deconstruction can be helpful if it's a rearranging of the furniture or if it's a minimizing of clutter, but deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction can actually lead you to a very vacuous, empty place. Like, think about this building. If we deconstructed the roof or the walls, and we start just ripping things out, if we kept going down that path, pretty soon there wouldn't be much left to stand on. Any two-year-old can tear up a room, but I think it takes real wisdom to learn how to live in the tension of a conflicted faith. I think that's where intimacy and beauty and trust is found in our relationship with God, by coming to a place, by being okay, that there are unresolved questions or unanswered questions and learning to live in that place of, Lord, I'm trusting you anyway. So idolizing our doubts isn't a good option. Another option that I, that I see, especially more in conservative Christian circles, is not so much to idolize doubt as it is to demonize doubt. And here, Christians are encouraged when you go through a time of doubt Man, it's automatically, it's from the enemy, it's from the devil. You gotta suppress it, you gotta push it out of your mind. You come to church, you pretend that everything's okay. How are you, brother? Oh, I'm great, praise the Lord. And inside you're dying, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm struggling with my faith. I don't know if I believe anymore. But you don't wanna tell anyone that because, well, you're afraid you're gonna be shamed or marginalized or people won't understand and so what do you do you push it down you push it down that was my response by the way to doubt for many many years so i grew up in a home 
up until the age of 10, it was like anything but a Christian home. My dad was an alcoholic, a drug user, a ton of brokenness in our family. Then at the age of 10, we started going to church, and like Jesus got a hold of us, but we got involved in these really like uber conservative churches. And I just remember having all these doubts and questions about my faith, and I didn't know what to do with them. So my response was just, I'm going to suppress it, I'm going to hide it, I'm going to pretend it's not there. Now the problem with that is that suppressed doubt often has a tendency to reemerge, but in a form way more toxic than before. Doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. It's not until we drag it into the light that doubt can actually be healing and redemptive. Let's take it a step further. Why is it that many, many Christians have this response to doubt? I think the issue is theological. Many people, um, they take their theology of doubt from Genesis chapter 3 rather than Genesis chapter 1. I love that we read from Genesis chapter 1 earlier. Um, many people, when they think of doubt, they think Satan, serpent, the Garden of Eden, evil, it's wrong. Didn't Satan use doubt to tempt Eve? Yeah, he did. He used it in a very dangerous way. But if we take our theology of doubt from Genesis 3, I think we're missing something. Genesis 1, I think, is far more compelling and interesting because what you find there is that God creates a world where questions can exist. You have a limitless God creating a world of boundaries, barriers, and limits, and he places male and female in the middle of a garden that had barriers, that had limitations. Adam and Eve had barriers and limitations to their time, to their intellect, etc., and at the same time, God made them deeply inquisitive and curious, and his very first command to them was, go, be fruitful, multiply, explore this world that I've given you. So what if God creates a world of barriers where questions exist, while at the same time making us deeply curious so that we would dream about what's on the other side of those barriers. I think if we take our theology of doubt from Genesis 1, it gives us a whole new paradigm shift of what doubt is. And I think in churches today, there's a misconception even of the word doubt. Um, for some Christians, doubt is just like this really dangerous word, and it's always associated with evil, devil, sin, whatever. But for me, a game changer was when I began to actually study, what does the Bible say about doubt? And, and how do we understand that as it relates to our own life? And here's what I found, is that doubt and unbelief are in separate categories. Think of, think of faith as like a spectrum. So over here, you have faith where Jesus wants us to be. What's the opposite of faith? Well, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt, then, is that middle kind of murky space in between. Think of a river. You have a bank of unbelief on one side. You have a bank of faith on the other. Well, doubt is kind of that middle space that can lead you one way or the other depending on what you do with it. Doubt is like a spiritual Switzerland. It's essentially neutral, right? It all depends. How am I going to respond to the situation? Now, when you study scripture, you actually do find that two separate words are used for doubt and unbelief. So, for, for example, the word doubt is in Greek diakrino, and diakrino means to, to separate or to be torn. It actually comes from this Latin word dubitare, which means to tear or to be, be divided. I think this is why the book of James says that the man who doubts is like the man who's on the sea and he's tossed back and forth. So doubt is that moment where part of you is like, 
I'm believing and I'm trusting and, and, and I, I believe in God's character and goodness, but I'm torn because I just went through this tragedy or I just experienced this deep intellectual question that was raised from my professor or I'm wrestling with some Bible texts. You're torn. Unbelief, on the other hand, is, is quite a bit different. Unbelief is a different word. It's apostia. And apostia means an unwillingness to believe. So do you see the difference? Doubt says, I'm seeking faith. I'm looking for the answer. Unbelief says, I've kind of made up my mind. Um, so back in 2010, um, my family and I, we moved from Hawaii. We were living in Hawaii at that time, suffering for Jesus. And then we moved to, to Oxford, and I was there for a couple years doing this master's program. It was a really interesting experience. But I'll never, I'll never forget one morning um, waking up, and I think it was The Guardian, and I read this article in which they interviewed the late uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, the physicist. I think he passed away last year. Um, and Stephen Hawking was also a very passionate, like, ardent uh, atheist and uh, spoke out quite a bit about religion, against religion, against Christianity. And in this article, that's exactly what he did. Um, he had this line in there in which he said, quote, Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. The people who put together this article, they then went to a guy named John Lennox, who was a professor of mine at the time, who was also a very passionate Jesus follower. If you've never heard of John Lennox, highly recommend like YouTube him. His stuff is brilliant. And they asked him, they said, look, your colleague, Stephen Hawking, just said that Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say? And without missing a beat, John Lennox said, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. This is a brilliant response, but he was putting his finger onto something that there is a form of unbelief that is very, very dogmatic, fundamentalist unbelief, where it's made up its mind, it's not open to new inquiry, it's not really pursuing truth, but it's saying, I have chosen disbelief. Um, I took a class down there, and they had Richard Dawkins come in for one, one of the lectures, and that was really interesting. And afterwards, they had this Q&A. And they asked them, they're like, so, uh, Professor Dawkins, one student asked, I'm a Christian, and is there any evidence that we could present to you, or that anyone could present to you, that would change your mind? And his response was so interesting. He said, no. He said, even if I saw suddenly written in the clouds, Yahweh is here. He said, I, I still wouldn't believe. I'd just write it off as some, like, psychological moment or whatever. So it's fascinating. As a scientist, he's saying, essentially, my beliefs aren't falsifiable. That's unbelief. Unbelief says, I've made up my mind. Doubt, on the other hand, is saying, I'm seeking, I'm searching, I'm asking, I'm wrestling, I'm trying to find the answer. And, and, and that is, I believe, what is to be the best response to our doubt. It's not idolizing our doubt, saying deconstruct everything and I'm walking away from my faith just because I have a few questions. That, that's not really healthy. Nor is suppressing and demonizing your doubt healthy. The best response is to say, I'm going to take a season of my life and I'm going to wrestle and think and pray and be in community and go further than ever before. I'm not just going to settle for the low-hanging fruit, but I'm going to take this time in my life and I'm going to go all 
in. Now, it could be six months of your life. It could be six years of, my, of your life. Or it could be like some of us, like whatever. The rest of your life as you wrestle with God through your questions. And this, for me, was a game changer. I began to realize in my season of doubt when I was actually wrestling, do I believe any of this at all? And I go back to the scriptures, only this time I began to see that almost on every single page, it was filled with people who had dark and disturbing and raw emotional questions about the God that they believed in. I saw this especially in the book of Psalms. I mean, it's so honest, right? How long, O Lord? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or I think of Moses on Mount Sinai who had questions about God's justice and, and he stayed up there on the mountain and then God showed him his glory. Or Sarah who questioned God's promises. Or Habakkuk. You know the name Habakkuk means wrestler. Uh, if you're a fan of Nacho Libre, the world's first luchador. Just an amazing guy. And he says, I'm going up to my tower. And I'm going to wait until, God, you show up. Or the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Now, I was, I was reading uh, a few months ago, what is this thorn in the flesh? What is this messenger from Satan that buffets him? And I went to all these commentaries, and one commentary is like, it was Satan. It was like some spiritual attack. Another guy said, no, it was a physical sickness that he was wrestling with. I actually read, true story, one commentary, he said, the messenger from Satan to buffet him was his mother-in-law. I don't think that went over well in his family. But regardless, Paul says, I'm wrestling with something, and I brought it to you. I didn't abandon my faith because I, I had questions. I brought it to you over and over, and that's when you said, my grace is enough for you. Um, one of my favorite psalms, I was sharing this at the earlier gathering, is Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good. Christians love that verse. We sing about it, we talk about it, the goodness of God. And is God good? Yeah. But we often fail to see verse 2, where Asaph begins to talk about his own struggles and questions, and he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Do you see the juxtaposition? Right? What is doubt? It's a tearing. What is doubt? Dubitari, Latin. It means your, your mind is being torn, your heart is being torn in two separate directions. And Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73, says, okay, here's, here's the issue. I believe that God is good. That is the foundation that I'm standing upon. But my feet are slipping because of what he was going through. Have you ever been in a season like that? Part of you is saying, I believe you're good. I'm singing about it. I'm reading about it. It's what I learned growing up. Truly, God is good. But cancer. But a difficult breakup. But this haunting sense of God's silence, but you went through something as a kid, but there's a part of scripture that's really messing with you right now, but something you've learned in university, and, and you're just like, how, how can these two things, the Christian worldview and the scientific worldview, how are they compatible? As for me, my feet almost slipped. Doubt then is kind of like a spiritual vertigo. It's, it's painful. And what makes doubt so difficult is it's not just you're, you're wrestling with an intellectual thing. I think what makes doubt so painful, I think it's why Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt, which by the way, I didn't share this at the early gatherings, that word merciful speaks of a doctor repairing a broken bone. Doubt is one of the most painful things spiritually you can go through because it feels like a fracturing of a relationship. 
It's because you've had this perception of who God is, but some event, some trauma, some issue, some question is causing you to reevaluate that. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone and then it comes out five years later, ten years later, and you're like, I, you just told me that story or someone just told me this about you. I had no idea that was true. Why didn't you tell me? Have you ever experienced that? And it's so painful because it feels like the fracturing of trust and you begin to wonder, do I really know you? Doubt at its most raw and vulnerable feels that way. Truly, God is good. I thought you were this way, God, but this now is causing my feet to slip, and I don't know if any of it's true anymore. It's one of the most painful places to be. I don't know if there's any C.S. Lewis fans in the house, um, but when I was in Oxford, uh, his works were like so refreshing to me, so encouraging to me. He wrote, of course, Mere Christianity, but there's this other lesser-known work called A Grief Observed. Have, have any of you read A Grief Observed? Okay, a handful. Um, if you want to be depressed, check out A Grief Observed. <laughs> it's like seriously so like hard and challenging, but it's also deeply compelling and beautiful. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed after the death of his wife. Her name was Joy. She uh, went through years of battling cancer. She finally uh, passed away. Tragically, it was a horrible story. And a year after she died, um, Lewis just was so devastated by this. Uh, he, he began to write this book. And it's kind of like the book of Psalms. He just pours out his emotion in real time. There's no, like, simplistic answers, but it's packed with unsettling, probing questions. He says things like, God, I, why weren't you there for me when I needed you most? God, I came to the door in prayer asking you to intervene, but all I got was a slam door in my face. See what I mean? It's like really brutal, hard to read. In fact, when Lewis first put out this book, he put it out under a pseudonym. He didn't want people to know it was a real him. So you read this book and it's like, whoa, he's going through this time of doubt or even deconstruction. He calls God in that book the great iconoclast. God, my view of you is being shattered. Truly, God is good, but now my feet are slipping. I thought you were this way, but when I needed you most, that's not the God that I got. When you keep reading the book, however, it's so fascinating. Lewis kind of turns the page towards the end, and, and he makes a strategic decision in his life, this trajectory in his life, where he says, you know, I'm not going to abandon my faith. I'm not going to give up on this God I believe in. In fact, I'm going to go after him more than ever before. And there is this line, this haunting, beautiful line, in one of his other books um, called Till We Have Faces, and he says, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? I, I think it's one of the most beautiful things Lewis ever wrote. In other words, he's saying, God, I've spent years wrestling with you, wondering where you were, doubting, deconstructing even. And I've come to the conclusion through it all that what my heart really wants is not more Christianese, not more bullet point scripted answers. What my heart really wants is you. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. And this is important because it shows us that doubt can be redeemed. That deep faith, 
awaits for us on the other side of agonizing doubt. That if we don't abandon our faith, relinquish our faith, but instead in those seasons lean into our faith, if we wrestle all night like Jacob, we can encounter the presence of God in new and beautiful ways. Have you guys heard of Christopher Wright? He's a uh, UK theologian, another brilliant mind. Um, he wrote this book called The God I Don't Understand. And in that book, he said, it seems to me that the older I get, the less I think I really understand God. Which is not to say that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on, my love and my trust grow deeper. That's kind of a jarring quote. But think of it in terms of relationship. What if questions or unanswered uh, issues or mystery in a relationship is actually vibrant and necessary for that relationship to thrive. So, for example, I, I talked to a guy, um, so like six months ago or so, and he's like so desperate to get married. He's in his later 20s now, and virtually every single time I see him, he's talking about some girl he's dating. Like, he's single, really wants to mingle. That's his story. And so last time I saw him, um, He's like, like beaming with joy. He's like, Dom, I just met this girl. It's amazing. Like, she, she's awesome. We've been dating now for a while. And I'm like, oh, cool. Where is she? I'm looking around. He's like, well, you know, she's, she's not a Christian. I'm like, so you're kind of missionary dating. Fascinating. And he's like, yeah, you know, we started talking about this. I'm like, so why? Like, if you had completely world, different worldviews, like, why are you dating her? And his response was so telling. He's, he's like, well, to be honest, she's hot. That, that's how he responded. Kind of like this room. And I'm like... So really, that's why? He's like, yeah, she's hot. I'm like, so is hell. Let's talk about that. Um, and then he said something else that was another alarm bell. He said, we've been dating now for a year. And he said, Dom, it's so cool. We haven't had a single argument. Isn't that amazing? And I looked at him, and I'm like, you've dated for a year, and you haven't had a single argument? I don't think that's a good sign. Because if you're really getting to know her, and she's especially getting to know you, there's going to be tensions. There's going to be issues, right? So I think about my own wife, Felisa. Um, I love my wife. We, I know a ton about her. Um, I know she's a morning person. She loves uh, to cook. Uh, she loves gardening. She loves interior design. Um, she used to like cats, and then she repented. And we got a dog. So there's a lot I know about her, but there's also a lot that that still surprises me, even though we've been married for a while. There are times where she kind of catches me off guard. I'll hear a story from her childhood, like, whoa, I didn't know that about you. Um, I'll see her respond in a situation that I didn't see coming. Uh, I open Spotify, I'm like, oh, Billy Ray Cyrus, fascinating, that's who you're listening to. We need to have a conversation. Um, so there are times in our relationship where she'll take me off guard, she'll surprise me. And I would argue that it's because there's a certain degree of ambiguity or even mystery in our relationship that it keeps the relationship alive and vibrant and moving forward. Because think about it, if I literally knew everything about my wife, if I knew every thought that she had before she said it, if I knew every placement of every atom, if I knew exactly where she was at any given second, not only would that be slightly creepy, uh, but it would also hinder the progression of love. True love is the pursuit of love. It's because there's questions aching to be asked. 
It's because there are dimensions to her that have yet to be fully explored or understood that keeps the relationship feeling so alive. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. And what if, again, theology of doubt, what if God, Genesis 1, creates a world in such a way where mystery is part of the package? What if God creates a world that questions naturally exist? Because what God cares about is more than bullet point certainty when it comes to our understanding of him. What God really cares about is trust and intimacy and closeness, the pursuit of love. Come and follow me, which implies pursuit and journey and exploration and adventure. One last story and I'm done, I promise. So I used to be... um, a missionary in a place called Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific, it used to be called uh, the New Hebrides, which I found out uh, earlier that there's some islands off the coast of Scotland called the Hebrides, so I guess there's some colonial connection there. In 1980, it changed from New Hebrides, it's in the South Pacific, to Vanuatu. Has anyone here been to Vanuatu? I'm really curious. Okay, I don't see any hands. Um, not surprising. It's like considered um, the most primitive nation on earth. In fact, when my pastor first asked if I'd like to go, I said yes. I was like so uh, impulsive. I was in my early 20s. I'm like ready for an adventure. Yeah, I'll go. Can you go for three years? Sure, I'll go. And I went home. I found a map and I spent like 45 minutes trying to find this place. I thought it was in Vanuatu. Um, it's actually South Pacific, kind of near Fiji area. It's a group of tiny clusters of little islands. And uh, it it is considered the the most primitive nation on earth. Um, No electricity, no running water, um, kind of Stone Age, really. And so I get there in my early 20s, and I had to learn this language called Bislama because I was teaching the Bible. So a group of students came from all these different islands, and they came for a year at a time, college-age guys, and we took them from Genesis to Revelation in a year, and I had to learn this language really, really quick. Um, It's kind of like, Bislama's like, caveman meets tarzan meets pig latin it's like (laughs) really really descriptive um one example would be a slingshot um there's no tesco's in in vanuatu at least there wasn't when i lived there um so if you want to eat you got to go kill your food and eat your food um and so we they had these little slingshots they made which they used but you wouldn't say slingshot in bazalama you would say himi one elastic blong shootem pigeon or my, my favorite word in Islam is piano. Um, so you, you wouldn't say piano. You would say, Himi one big fella box, where he got white teeth blong him, mo he got black teeth blong him, mo suppose you kill him teeth blong him, Himi sing out long you. That's the word piano. <laughs> so, so you can imagine I'm teaching through the Bible and I come to Romans and I see the word propitiation. I'm like... Okay, this is going to take a long time, and it did. So every night, we, we would sit together around a fire, and because uh, there's nothing else to do in Vanuatu. Um, and, and they called it talk story, which is actually a really beautiful thing, because now, you know, stories is what we do on Instagram. There, they actually engage with real people. Um, so every night, we, we'd sit around this fire, and each person would tell a story. And I'd been there for a few months at this point, and they're like, so Dominic, tell us a story. What is your favorite place in America? And without even thinking, I blurted out, Disneyland. And they've never heard of Disneyland. They're like, what's Disneyland? 
how do you describe Disneyland <laughs> to people who are living in the Stone Age? Like, where do you even begin, right? And so I immediately knew I was in way over my head. And uh, I'm like, well, okay, um, there, there's a place um, in California. And uh, the first thing you see when you get there, they have this beautiful big castle. The problem was in Vanuatu, there's no word for castle. The closest word they had, the closest translation is big fella hut. said <laughs> in California, there's a big fella hut. How big is this hut? I don't know, like 100 feet tall or something. And it's really colorful and beautiful and there's lights and all this. And, and they're like, already their mind's blown. Like this is way bigger than anything they'd ever seen or imagined. And they're like, okay, well, who, who lives in this castle? Like, what, what, what's this about? Well, you can't talk about Disneyland without talking about the mascot. I'm like, well, there's, there's a mouse that lives there. Um, and the mouse's name is Mickey. But the problem was in Vanuatu, there's no word for mouse. Um, the closest word they have is big fella rat. So, so there's a big fella hut in California. And there's a big fella rat named Mickey that, that lives there. And they're like, how big is this rat? I'm like, like 10 feet tall. Now, this was their worst nightmare because rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds terrible. And I'm like, well, it's not a real rat because there's someone inside the rat. He eats people? No, 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 no. The, the, the person's alive, kind of moving through the skin of the rat and talks through the demon possession like what is this like they were so scared and, and so I, I like change the subject and I'm like well the, if you've been to Disneyland you know there's these big fella cups and you sit inside these big fella cups you know the teacups you'll spin around and around and they're like why would you want to go there and I'll and I'll never forget so it got real quiet for a second and and they're just looking at me like so confused and freaked out um and one of the guys across the fire looks at me and he's like like totally serious he says Dominic, you should never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. And Mickey the Rat, he said, is a witch doctor. <laughs> now, he might be true about Mickey the Rat. I don't know. But in my mind, like, okay, happiest place on earth. It's incredible. I love to go there. In their mind, it was a version of hell led by a mastermind slash witch doctor named Mickey. And so we, like, just went back and forth. I was, like, getting nowhere fast. I, it probably took like half hour, an hour or so. I'm, I'm trying my best to describe this place. Now, what do you do when you've run out of words? What, what do you do when, when, when you don't know what else to say, when you're trying to describe a place to someone and you just don't know how to do it? Well, at the end of the conversation, I'm like, look, if I had the money, and I didn't, I was a poor college student, I made $100 a month working at the school. But I'm like, if I, if I had the money, I think the only way that I could resolve your doubts and questions because they were like clearly shaken up by this. I'm like, the only way would be for you to go, right? If I had the money, I'd buy all of your plane tickets. We'd get on a plane, get some clothes on first because they don't wear much in Vanuatu. Get on a plane, we'll fly to California, we'll take a taxi, we'll go to the big fella hut. You could even see, maybe you could get a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like, it would be amazing. Like, if you could see it, if you could experience it, if you could go there, maybe that would be the way to resolve some of these questions. Think about this in terms of doubt. Doubt is the moment in your life where you're shaken. 
As for me, my feet almost slipped. Doubt is the moment you're sitting around the fire and you don't know what you believe because you've just heard something that has shaken you to the core. Doubt is the moment when you hear big fella hut, big fella rat, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. What if that moment is the Spirit's way of saying, I want to invite you on an adventure? We're going to go further and farther than you've ever been before. Pack up your bags. Let's get on the plane and go. Don't abandon your faith. Don't walk away from your faith. Instead, lean into your faith. Wrestle with me. Seek me. Be raw. Be honest. Be vulnerable. Pour out your heart before me. Be in community. Don't be alone in this season. And as you do that, I'm going to take you places that you never dreamed of before. There's mystery, there's ambiguity, but there are places to explore and there are things that I want to show you. So seek that you may find and knock that the door may be open to you because I am with you in those times of doubt. Show mercy to those who doubt. In your life, you know someone who's doubting? Show mercy. If you're doubting, here's the good news. No one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus. I love this about him. I was reading a couple days ago, Matthew 28. Jesus, he sends out his disciples into the world, the Great Commission. You know the story. Go make disciples of all, of all nations. And there's this crazy verse that, that hit me in a fresh way this last year. It says there, as Jesus sent him out, some worshiped and some doubted. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, worshipers, you're on the team, doubters go home, right? I'd separate the worshipers from the doubters. But Jesus didn't. He sent them both out. And they were instrumental in turning the world upside down and starting the world's greatest revolution that it's ever seen before. And we get to be a part of his mission too. Doubting, worshiping, stumbling, struggling, hurting, rejoicing, all of it, the big, beautiful mess of what it means to know and follow this Jesus. I don't know why you utter no answer, Lewis said, but I've come to discover you, yourself, are the answer. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you so much that you are with us in all seasons, the highs and the lows, the ebbs and the flows of faith. Thank you that even when it feels like our faith is failing, that you never will. And I pray especially tonight for my brothers and sisters who are in that space of just wrestling and wondering and asking. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and inspire them and fill them with your spirit, that this is a crucial moment in their life where maybe it feels like their faith is falling apart. Their feet, their feet are slipping like Asaph wrote. But you're going to be with them through this season. And on the other side of it, they may not have a list of scripted answers, but on the other side of their wrestling, they would have encountered you. So give them the strength like Jacob to wrestle all night. Give them the courage like Habakkuk to get up on the tower and say, I will not go until you show up. Give them the tenacity of a C.S. Lewis who went through a horrific season but then chose to trust in you. Father, I pray 
Do you give them hope? The doubt is not how the story ends. That you would deepen our faith and show us what it means to know you and trust you and lead us into a greater relationship with you. Bless us, church. Thank you for this amazing community. We love you so much, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Amen.